Okay, we're going to uh, get started. Uh, my name is Ilana Singh. I'm a professor of science, ethics, and society at King's College London. And I'd like to welcome you to the sixth annual LSE <coughs> Literary Festival. And today's discussion is going to be on self-help, myth or reality. And I'm very pleased that we've got three wonderful speakers here um, to speak to you about their books and their research and uh, their general thoughts on that concern. So the way that we're going to be uh, working today is that each of our speakers is going to speak for about 15 minutes and I'll introduce them before they start speaking and I'll keep them to strict time because they've asked me to do that. Um, and then I think we'll have some discussion among the panelists once all of the, the speakers have had their say. Uh, we'll keep that brief and to the point and then we'll open it up to, to all of you. And um, when that happens, the mic will be passed around and, and once you have the mic, you'll be able to to ask your question. Um, so I, I'd like to introduce the first speaker, who is Paul Dolan. Uh, Paul is a professor of behavioral economics here at the London School of Economics, and um, he's going to talk about, about his work on, I believe it, on nudge. Oh, am I? Okay, cool. Um, thank you. Hello, everybody. Um, yeah, hello, everybody. <laughs> Good afternoon. Time to wake up after your lunch or, you know, after the beer or whatever it is that, that, that helps settle your nerves. Um, so, self-help, myth or reality, can we improve ourselves? Uh, short answer, no, but it doesn't really much matter. Um, is that me done? <laughs> 15 minutes. Um, because it's really, you know, it's really, really hard to change ourselves. Um, changing ourselves requires us to change the way that we um, think. And that's really hard to change the way we think. Um, or not to think. If you try not to think about a white bear, for example, try not to think about a white bear, you're going to think about a white bear. Um, you're probably going to think about a white bear much more than you did before you were asked not to think about it. Um, most self-help books um, advise you on how to change the way you think. Be positive. Yeah, no shit. I kind of worked that out for myself. Um, the question is, of course, how do you do that? Um, think a little differently. You know, be positive, change your outlook. Yeah, and I, I kind of get that. Um, but the challenge is being able to, um, to do it. And, of course, when you can't do it, you're made much more unhappy than you were before you, you know, bought the self-help book and you go out and buy another self-help book. The, uh, the biggest predictor of buying a self-help book is having bought a self-help book in the last 12 months. So um, clearly, clearly it's hard to change who you are. But um, I don't actually think that much matters because what you can do um, is rather than changing the kind of cognitions of your mind, you can change the context uh, of your lives. Um, one of the things that the behavioural sciences have taught us over the last two decades, that's economic psychology, neuroscience, is that actually most of what you do simply comes about rather than being thought about. So if you can actively design environments differently, and I guess that's the nudge bit, um, then you can make better decisions and be happier without having to think too hard about it. So that's actually, I think, quite helpful. And I'll come back to that in a second. But let me just, um, first of all, consider what it is to improve ourselves. Um, 
because that's not an obvious question, actually. Uh, well, it's an obvious question. The answer is not obvious. Um, I would think that the answer loosely requires us to feel better for longer. That's essentially what improving ourselves would mean. It shows up in feeling better for longer. Ideally, you want to be uh, feeling less misery, pain, anxiety, futility, pointlessness, um, and more pleasure, purpose, fulfilment, joy, ecstasy, contentment for longer. That would be the ideal way in which your life gets better, i.e. you're happier. And in the adjectives that I used just then, there are a range of different adjectives that distinguish um, in the work that I do between pleasure and purpose. The idea that um, happy lives are, one that contains, are ones that contain some balance of things that people find fun on the one hand and things that they find fulfilling on the other. They won't be the same balance for everybody and they won't be in equal parts. But a happy life is one that has the right balance for you of fun and fulfilment. So if you're a pleasure machine, um, you could probably be made happier by having a little more purpose in your life. And if you're like many academics that I know at the LSE and elsewhere, a bit of a purpose engine, um, you could probably be made happier by having a little bit of pleasure. Um, so, um, and you can read more about that in my book as it comes out at the end of the summer. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, but one thing to say that it might not come from is our mistaken desires for achievement, success, Maybe education, even. Um, happiness data suggests that having a PhD, by the way, is probably about a bit, one step too far beyond uh, what you want to be happy. Uh, probably stop at a master's uh, for those of you uh, it's not too late for. Um, but we're often mistaken um, about the things that will make us happy. Um, and uh, I could talk at some length about that, but I won't because that's for another day. Um, let me now turn to the question of how we can improve our happiness. That's, that's, that's the key charge, I think, for today. So um, let me think about ways in which we can do that. Well, um, the one thing that you need to start by doing is accepting that you are slaves to your situations rather than masters of your mind. I like that line, by the way. I came up with that on the train on the way in this morning. You are slaves to your situations rather than masters of your minds. Um, that is, you are affected by situations, contexts, environments, much more than you give yourself credit for, and actually much more than you know, because most of these situational effects on our behaviour and on how we feel are unconscious and automatic. Um, loosely speaking, we have a system one and a system two in our brains. We have a system one, which is the, which is the well, let's start with system two, actually. System two is the Mr. Spock brain. That's the bit of your brain that you think drives most of what you do, because it's the bit that you've got conscious access to. But um, the star of the show is system one. System one is your automatic reptilian brain. It's the bit that you share with every other mammal and animal. It's evolved through billions of years, or 6,000 if you're a creationist. And um, it, it is always present, always active, always engaged, and drives much of what you do largely without you knowing it. So um, we now have a litany of examples from the behavioural sciences about how heavily influenced you are by context and situation. Um, if you've got a fast food restaurant near your kid's school, your kids are more likely to get fat. Um, they're more likely to clean up the crumbs off their table in the fast food restaurant if there's a smell of citrus in the air. And your doctor is more likely to wash their hands if there's a citrus smell in the hospital that they're working in. 
All of these things drive your behaviour in ways that are largely unconscious and automatic. Um, you know, simple advice that you read, you know, if you want to lose weight, get smaller plates, because uh, you fill your plate up. Um, but these are, these are, I wouldn't want to trivialise these effects. You can have some really significant changes, well, significant effects, for very, very small changes. Very small situational nudges will have huge effects on your behaviour. Um, Another interesting example, I could talk for days on these either um, as well, but um, you know, if, you, if you're in an Olympic Games bout you know, where you get randomly assigned red or blue at the start um, and you try and kill each other but no one does um, and the judges assess who's fought hardest, red win two-thirds of those bouts and blue win only one-third. Having those colours randomly assigned would mean that it should be roughly 50-50, but you are overwhelmingly more likely to win if you wear red partly because you probably fight a bit harder, but largely because the people judging you think that you fought harder because red is a much more visceral um, you know, kind of fighting colour compared to the softer, warmer creativity of blue. Huge effects. If ever you're in a fight, wear red. Um, now, as I say, we really need to be very, very humble about these situational factors. Um, we, might, we can have some control over the likelihood of getting ourselves into particular situations, but don't be surprised when you act in certain ways when you're in them. Here's another little line I'm coming on the train. If you don't want to cheat on your spouse, don't get drunk in a hot friend's house. <laughs> right. So, I know, I like that. That's good, isn't it? I'm actually good at this. Um, so, you know, when you're in that hot emotional state certain things are likely to happen. And don't be surprised if they do, because you're a creature of your environment. What you can have some control over, though, insofar as you might not want to do that, kind of, there's, you know, it's an open question, um, is to reduce the likelihood of it happening by engaging your system to Mr. Spot Brain to design environments more, it, more effectively to allow system one to kind of run rip, to, to allow you to go with the grain of your human nature. Um, so, how am I doing for time with someone who was insistent that we didn't, that we didn't go beyond our 15 minutes? Three minutes. Three minutes, perfectly, perfectly timed. I thought I had three and a half. So, um, the way that, that joins all of this up is what we pay attention to. Our behaviour and our feelings are determined by the allocation of attention. We pay attention. Notice that's quite critical. We pay attention. It's a scarce resource. When you pay attention to one thing, you can't be paying attention to something else. Your attention is allocated consciously, but unconsciously as well, and not, not but and. And a lot of interventions designed to improve yourselves will be ones aimed at targeting your conscious attention. Mindfulness, for example, helps you pay attention to the moment, takes your mind away from thoughts into experiences. And that's very helpful. It's also very effortful. It works very well on people that it works on. Um, you have to select into it, and you have to essentially train yourself to become mindful. As well as that, design environments that make you more mindful without having to think too hard about it. Turn your internet off. Block your email alerts. Um, don't multitask. Multitasking requires um, uh, quite a lot of energy switching from one task to the next. Stay focused on one thing at a time. And turn your mobile phone off. If you don't want to be distracted, avoid the sources of that distraction. There's a nice game in the US, it's called uh, the mobile phone stacking game, 
otherwise known as don't be a dick at dinner, where everyone puts their phones in the middle of the table when they go out for dinner, and the first person to answer an email, check the phone, has to you know, uh, you know, pay for everyone else's dinner and their drinks. Um, these are happiness by design, that's the title of my book, by the way, um, interventions that enable you to design environments in ways that just make it easier for you to be happier without having to think too hard about it. Thank you very much. next speaker is uh, Julian Baggini, who in my mind has, has, is already must be quite happy because he manages the remarkable feat of being both a philosopher and a writer and doing it very successfully. So, thank you, Julian. Uh, yeah, thanks very much. Well, uh, this, this subject, I find an interesting one because you know, self-help is a thing which I think most of us who sort of had a bit of an education, sort of almost like trained to despise. And yet, it's something that we're increasingly sort of finding ourselves involved with. And, you know, one gets into this risk of the narcissism of the small differences. You know, what's the difference between showing your Im- the impact of your research on society and showing that your work can actually help people to live um, better lives? But I think there are some reasons why self-help as a genre has, uh, is rightly disliked, shall we say, if not despised. Now, the idea of reading and studying for self-improvement is as old as the hills. I don't see anything objectionable about it. Um, There's a difference, though, with the the typical style and tropes of the self-help genre, which I think are problematic. The first thing is, of course, that self-help tends to almost inevitably over-promise and oversimplify. If you're trying to sell a book which has, like, how-to or this way you can or whatever in the title, then almost inevitably what you're going to have to do is to oversimplify and overpromise. Because, as, as Paul suggested right at the beginning, really, I mean, actually, it, in most things, it's limited what you can do, and, and it's also very complicated as to, as to what, you can, what you can do. The other, the other sort of objection I have to a lot of self-help is, it, is the instrumentalisation of, of good things. So, you know, mindfulness, has been mentioned again already, mindfulness does indeed seem to be an extremely uh, useful thing, but it's sort of now just sort of being packaged and latched onto as, as just a tool to achieve any goal you like. So there is something, there's got to be something a bit weird about a practice which has its origins in Buddhist philosophy uh, being sold as a way to improve your business and increase your bottom line. And yeah, mindfulness for business is something done without irony. Now I'm not saying there's nothing to be said for that, but I think we have to be a little bit sort of at least careful or questioning about the way these things go. I think there's another problem, though, which is that with self-improvement in broad terms, how do you actually set about improving yourself? Now, I perhaps have an old-fashioned and rather austere view about this, um, which is that essentially self-improvement starts from, from realising how basically quite pathetic and weak and stupid we all are. Well, you know, I am, anyway. I won't speak for you. And that, you know, we, we, it's worth trying to be a bit better, right? So it kind of starts from an idea of, you know, we really, we really have, to, we, we have to work on ourselves. It's a hard job, and it's difficult. And I think that rather what self-help tends to do, by the way it is, is written and packaged, is it tends to just offer you these little recipes. As long as you follow this, you will be better. It kind of takes the hard work out of self-improvement. And I kind of think, you know, that if you try and engage in any serious self-improvement under the illusion it's not going to be hard work and difficult and you're probably going to fail, then you are probably going to fail. I think one of the other real problems about it is that if you're interested in 
the sort of richer kind of self-improvement, then I think that the most fundamental thing you've got to do is you have to question your ends and, and not just your means. And a lot of self-help starts from the assumption that you know what you want, you know what it is you want to get, you just need someone to help you getting from A to B. <coughs> and actually, I, I think that's uh, deeply problematic, particularly when it comes to things like you know, I mean, happiness, for example. You know, what it, we all kind of assume we want to be happy and so we buy a book which tells us how to be happy but of course again as Paul's kind of suggested first of all you you may not think happiness is the goal actually and if you do you're probably going to sort of reflect quite a lot on what happiness actually means and come up with something which is not quite uh, pure common sense so I think that that sort of reflecting on what ends are worth pursuing is really important, whereas self-help tends to just sort of like try and get us there as quickly as possible. Actually, you know, diet books are a similar kind of thing, really. What is it we really want? I mean, you know, I, I speak as someone who is carrying a little bit too much around his, his waist and, uh, uh, well, jaw and neck and everything else for that matter, but, you know. Um, but in, in thinking about, you know, if I say, oh, I want to lose weight, yeah, unless you're really clear about what it is you want to achieve and why, and why that's a good thing, then you can be led down all sorts of, like, blind alleys and, uh, and inevitable disappointments. Now, self-help, you can criticise as a genre, but I think what's quite interesting how the sort of self-help mentality has even come to kind of infect more serious non-fiction. I'll be interested in what my fellow panellists think about this. You know, you're a serious researcher now, and you're doing serious work at somewhere like the LSE, and you'd like to write a book, because you think this book contains important information that the world could benefit from. Now, I bet you that if more than nine times out of ten, any author who goes to a publisher, all the publisher's uh, sort of pressure is going to be to, as much as possible, make, give that book the semblance of a self-help book, right? Now, I'm not saying this in an accusatory way. It's a pressure I feel as well to a certain extent. And interestingly, my latest book has the word how-to in the subtitle. Now, I'm okay with that because that's the world we live in and I don't think, you know, I I hopefully haven't nonetheless transformed the content of my book so as to fall into those traps I've talked about before about oversimplification and promising answers. But that that pressure being there does have the capacity to to, to distort things and make things um, more complicated. And actually, that's really problematic because if you're genuinely interested in self-improvement, I think most of the time you are better off actually reading a good sober book by an expert on the subject, one which hasn't been packaged for self-help, because you actually like to get better information there and a more balanced view, and you're not going to have things that sort of over-promise. So, for example, I don't know, whatever the problem might be, you know, if you've got uh, find out what the, the actual latest research and scientists and experts think of it, it's going to be much better than buying the book which says how to do X, Y, and Z. Um, but yet, to go back to the pressure thing, I mean, when I was writing my book, I spoke to a trio of researchers who work on appetite at Bristol University. And, you know, these people know a heck of a lot about, you know, things like, you know, the psychology of it, the plate size, the, the portion control, and anticipation, a lot of things that Paul's been talking about as well, setting up the environment in such a way that you eat less. They really understand it well. And I say to them, you know, aren't you tempted to sort of put this all together into a book, you know, and sort of like, you know, the, the, whatever it might be, the Bristol Appetite Research uh, Diet, but they have to come up with a, a snappier title than that. And it, what's interesting is they, they won't as yet. They haven't done that as yet. The reason being that they just are just 
in a sense, they're, they're too sober about it for those purposes. They know that actually a lot of this research is not so clear-cut that they can really get from what the research shows to a clear prescription, which they are confident that will work. They also know things are very complicated. So, yeah, being kind of like serious and sensible and sober, um, they find themselves unable to write that book. The problem is someone else will do it for them, either a more sort of like ambitious colleague, ambitious in, in the sense ambitious for public acclaim and, and, and large uh, book royalties, or, as is often the case, some sort of journalist or layperson who just sort of shoves all the evidence together uh, in, in a very sort of slipshod way and, and puts it out so as to make it seem like it's um, all very straightforward. So I think, I think those are those problems. So, but having sort of been a bit negative then, what then can we say more positively about sort of reading for self-improvement? Now, I'll skip aside the science thing, actually, and talk a little bit about philosophy, but also the arts and literature, because I think that these things are, 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 are both important. Can one read philosophy if you are as part of a project of serious self-improvement? Well, I'm, I must confess, I've always been somewhat sceptical of this claim that philosophy makes us better people, perhaps because I've hung around philosophers. And it's not that they're terrible people, but they seem to be no better or worse than anyone else, frankly. Um, but, there's, but there is one aspect, I think, in which philosophers do perhaps could do with a bit of um, self-improvement, which is that... If you philosophers have the self-image that they are the people who have this expert training in critical thinking, so they kind of do think they're the uber thinkers. They are uh, therefore kind of immune to the kind of confusion and sloppy thinking that the rest of us fall into. And that in itself is a trap. (laughs) Because again, as Paul said, it's very, very difficult to change your thinking to improve yourself. And if you want to sort of like uh, trip yourself up, the one thing you mustn't do is convince yourself you are really much smarter than everyone else. Because that will simply blind you to all those biases and prejudices that you have. Uh, Actually, I think it's slightly speculative, but I think this is actually one reason why there's such a low representation of women in philosophy compared to other subjects. It's actually very, very striking that the proportion of women in philosophy has lagged way behind not just subjects in general, but even sort of comparable subjects. You might think ones which have a, you know, a similar historic sort of bias. Well, why is that? I think one reason is that philosophy uh, in the Anglo-American tradition I was very sceptical of the idea that it really had anything to learn from things like feminism um, and sociology and anthropology and psychology because philosophy was simply about following the arguments wherever they led by a logical process. That is a gender-neutral process, right? There's nothing gendered about logic, and in a sense that's right. But being convinced about that, they therefore thought that, you know, as a, as a profession and as philosophers, they didn't really have to think, didn't have to think too hard, really, about uh, issues of, of gender equality. As a result, I think all sorts of things in the actual practices and structures of philosophy continue to discriminate against women in ways that they were just blind to because they, they didn't think that these things they had to worry about these things because all they did was think clearly. So I think there are sort of issues around that. And I'd also really be against the idea of approaching philosophy primarily with some predetermined goal. You know, I would like to use philosophy in order to uh, make me more this or more that, particularly you know, happier or more content. I think that to do philosophy sincerely, you, have to be prepared, you do have to be prepared to sort of follow things wherever they go. 
and some conclusions you might reach in philosophy may indeed be profoundly um, depressing, actually. Um, I don't think it's any inevitability that philosophy is going to lead you to, to jolly conclusions. I mean, the idea that life has no ultimate purpose or meaning and death is the end and there's no ultimate guarantee of moral goodness, for example, yeah, they're not particularly cheery thoughts, are they? Well, I don't think. Um, but, you know, I th- but philosophy... Even if we do do philosophy with this goal of self-improvement, I think it's really important to do it not in isolation. And I think there are two things in particular which are very important um, if we are to sort of like have this sort of ethical project, if you like, in making ourselves better. Uh, One actually on the sort of cognition side is psychology. As I sort of suggested earlier before with the comments about uh, gender equality and so forth, I think that if you really are interested in becoming a better thinker, you really can't rely on philosophy by itself. You really do have to understand um, a lot about psychology, all the cognitive biases, all the kind of distortions which, which lead us astray. These are very, very powerful forces. And so I, you know, any kind of critical thinking course you want to do has got to be at least as attentive to psychology as it is to philosophy. But if you consider the more sort of the ethical project of, you know, Again, be sort of a bit high-minded and old-fashioned. We want to sort of live uh, better, be better people. And I think there is an important role that needs to be played in, in arts and literature. Now, again, I don't think this is automatic at all. I think it was like Prunella Scales or somebody who I once saw quoted saying that, um, of course the arts make people better, better people. You know, you don't see someone come out of the opera and then go and mug someone or something. Uh, that tells you more about the demographic of people who go to the opera than anything else. Um, there are some notoriously sort of narcissistic writers and artists and composers and uh, you don't need to go, even without the sort of cliched example of the uh, um, you know, the the, the Nazis who listen to Wagner and everything Um, so I don't think that's true, but I think literature and the arts can do something if you you write, I think the, the thing is about having the right attitude, you see you can only really become a better person by anything you do, reading, studying, whatever if you approach it in the right spirit, which is to, to see yourself as like that you do have something to learn and to be questioning and so forth. And uh, because I'm running out of time, I won't go on much more, but can I just say one thing I think the arts are important for is um, showing us in ways which are much more vivid than any logical argument can be um, what it is to live in certain ways, getting us to attend to what is actually morally salient. And a very brief example, I think if you look through all sorts of the films of the Coen brothers, for example, I think these are important like works of moral philosophy. There's a recurring theme in those films. You see how, what's the difference between the people who are the goodies and the baddies? Well, one or two are just psychopaths, right? The rest... The difference is that some people are managed just... It's not some other good moral theory, some of bad moral theory. Some allow themselves to be led astray by weakness and temptation. And other than that, they're completely normal and just like anything else. And in a sense, that is an important thing to be attending to if you yourself are intending to be um, a better person. So uh, I think I better stop. Have I gone on too long? I'm very sorry for going on too long. I will try to be a better person. I shall read a book on time management. Thank you. Thanks, Julian. Uh, Our next speaker is Professor Barbara Sahakian from the University of Cambridge, and Barbara is a clinical neuropsychologist. She's certainly one of our most prominent uh, neuroscientists in the UK, and she's a leading thinker around the uh, issues of neuroenhancement. 
Thank you for that nice introduction, and thank you for inviting me today. Now, I'm going to ask the other speakers if they would just sit in the front row, because I'm going to quiz them later on the slides they're going to see. <laughs> so, uh, do I just start here, or this first slide gets put up for me? Okay, uh, there we go. Okay, so I'm going to talk about um, smart drugs or cognitive enhancing drugs. I'll talk a little bit about how they act in the brain, and I'll discuss the ethical issues. Now, I only have a 15-minute slot, so obviously I can't go into much depth on this. So my book, Bad Moves, is out there, and I'm very happy to sign it if anybody wants to get it, and it picks up on a lot of these themes and, and other material as well. Well, I work with cognitive enhancing drugs uh, because basically all the people with neuropsychiatric disorders and brain injury tend to have cognitive problems, and some obviously more than others. So we all know about Alzheimer's dementia, and I did some of the first proof-of-concept studies with the drugs that are now treatments, Aricep and Dinepazil. I worked on the cholinesterase inhibitors as the class of drugs that they are to improve uh, cognition in these patients, particularly uh, attention. And that work was published years ago in The Lancet. And in order to do that work, I set up uh, one of the first memory clinics in the country with uh, Raymond Levy at the Institute of Psychiatry so we could get patients who were early in the course of the disorder so we could improve their cognition. But all these other uh, conditions, depression, schizophrenia, for instance, we have antipsychotic medication, and that helps with the uh, psychotic symptoms that patients have, but they're still left with a debilitating cognitive impairment, which means that they can't work and enjoy life and and, uh, fully function in society. So that's what I work on. I just wanted to put my work in context. Now, I'm going to be talking about smart drugs, pharmacological cognitive enhancement, but there are other ways we can boost our cognition, and my favorite way is education. And uh, we know that uh, learning generates new brain cells, uh, neurogenesis in the brain, and also physical exercise is very good for you. And now we have uh, cognitive training that we can do uh, in do through games as well, and that's, that's very useful. So there are these other methods that we can use to boost our brain power. So I run a psychopharmacology laboratory up in Cambridge, and I work with all these drugs. So most of you will be very familiar with methylphenidate or Ritalin, which is the most common uh, drug treatment in the UK for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And with my colleague, Dr. Ulrich Muller, we actually run a clinic for adults. Because many of you may not realize that 50% or more of people who have ADHD as a child still have it as an adult. And many people would not be able to work and hold down a job if they, if they uh, didn't have a, a drug like Ritalin because they couldn't stay organized and get to work on time and so forth. And Ritalin boosts two chemicals in the brain, dopamine and noradrenaline, and both of these are involved in cognition. Dopamine, you probably know from its uh, um, role in reward systems as well, reward and reinforcement. And uh, so that's one reason why there was this newer treatment, adamoxetine, that was devised. And that's really boosts noradrenaline in the brain rather selectively to improve cognition and attention. And... uh, People wanted a drug like that because not only does methylphenidate not treat the whole population of people with ADHD, some people don't respond to it as well, but also some people get side effects. So they were looking for another drug, and also people were concerned about the dopamine action in the brain and whether uh, people might get addicted. So atomoxetine has no addictive potential because it doesn't act on the dopamine system.
And then the drug I'll be focusing most on because it's one of the ones that's showing an increasing lifestyle use by healthy people in the UK is modafinil. And modafinil was uh, regulated in 1997 as provigil and for excessive daytime sleepiness or narcolepsy. And I always say, well, if you fall asleep, um, it's maybe because you did have too much lunch or maybe you're uh, just a bit drowsy. But if I fall asleep, that's narcolepsy. Um, so it has many actions in the brain, and, and it, it works. Uh, it's very uh, wake-promoting. So those actions might actually be through orexin and histamine, but its cognitive enhancing effects are probably through um, the neurotransmitters, dopamine and noradrenaline, and possibly glutamate as well, glutamatergic function. So in my lab, how do we measure things, uh, cognitive processes, different forms of cognition, um, objectively? Well, I've uh, helped co-invent the CanTab test, which run on a touch-sensitive computer screen, or they run on an iPad now. And we can use this methodology for assessing people's working memory or other forms of memory in the laboratory. And working memory is a very important kind of memory. We use it all the time for all our higher level cognitive processes like um, learning and problem solving and also for um, decision making. So it's a component of all these important processes and I won't go into it in too much depth but it's also very strongly relinked to fluid intelligence which is kind of creative intelligence but also to crystallized intelligence, which is what's measured by the IQ test or the Wexler Adult Intelligence Scale. So here's the test. And so you'd be sitting there doing this test on a touch-sensitive screen, and I'd say, I want you to search through these boxes to find a blue token. And when you do, move it over to that column on the right-hand side. But the important rule is that once you find a blue square inside a red box, you will never find another blue square in that box again. So never go back to a box where you found a blue square. So you'd start by touching one of the boxes to open it. Nothing there, nothing there, nothing there. Okay, blue square, we'll move it over there. But now we know not to go back to that box again, and if we do, that's an error. So we start our search again, and we know to skip over that next box there, and that's how that works. And that's how we test it in the laboratory. And you can actually put people in a scanner while they're doing this task on the computer so you can see the neural network in the brain that's activated while people, healthy people are doing this task. And we can give them Ritalin or methylphenidate uh, while they're doing this task, and we can find that they have a better performance on the task, as you can see here. These are Cambridge undergraduates. But they also, their brain doesn't have to work as much in order to have this better performance, so it increases the efficiency of the neural network in the brain that's used when you do this task, which is the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex network. Now, modafinil also improves working memory in healthy volunteers, as I've said, and you can see that very clearly there, but also in patients with first-episode psychosis. So this is another reason I'm looking at these treatments to try to improve cognition in these patient groups. So we'll talk about it in healthy people. Well, methylphenidate's been used a lot for a long time, and it's called vitamin R or Arbol in the States. And this professor says people find this drug enticing because they can get their academic work done quicker or do more in a shorter period of time. So for students who have put off work are not very strong academically, we find some of them using it to counteract or remedy their problems. 
And there's been, a, as you can see, an increasing use of this drug in about 16% to 20 to 25% of people on college campuses in the USA use these drugs as cognitive enhancing drugs. And some of you will be aware that uh, recently the Care Quality Commission was concerned about the increase, 56% increase in the past five years of methylphenidate or Ritalin in this country. And there's several reasons for that. Uh, one is that we're diagnosing ADHD more often now. Another reason is that we now know that it, adults do have it. So well, whereas the clinic that we started in Cambridge was a second cl clinic when we started it, there are now 40 in the, 40 in the UK for adults. <clears throat> but you can see here that the global market share of modafinil was more than 700 million uh, per year, dollars per year. And of course, uh, we know that narcolepsy is not that common. And you can see that uh, about 90% of modafinil is used off-label by healthy people. And when they did a survey in, in the Varsity newspaper in Cambridge, they found that one in 10 students were using it. And I've been very interested in why. And of course, we have people who want to get the competitive edge, and that's a bit like in sports and people want to do better on their exams, and you can see that even a small 10% improvement in a memory score could lead to a higher A-level grade or degree class. Uh, my colleagues often use it, academics for jet lag to counteract their jet lag. And then, as you can see here, I have asked people to rate after those, like that test that you just saw. I said, how pleasurable was it doing that test? And you can see it wasn't all that pleasurable under placebo, but people found it incredibly pleasurable under modafinil. So it, it seems to include uh, in, increase your task-related motivation. And we've looked at it in sleep-deprived doctors because uh, with Lord Aradazi we thought, at Imperial College, we thought that it might be a better cognitive-enhancing drug and doesn't have the side effect of tremor that caffeine, coffee has, and that's what most of these surgeons are taking to stay awake and alert at night. And as you can see, when these sleep-deprived doctors were on modafinil, they were able to solve problems much better. They showed more cognitive flexibility, and they were also less impulsive. So I'll just stop with the sort of potential harms and concerns in regard to this uh, smart drug use. And I'm worried about young people using it, because we now know our brains are still in development right through late adolescence, early young adulthood. So it's one thing if you have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and it's quite severe and you need a drug treatment. But if you've got a healthy brain, what, what's the effect of putting a drug into that system? And we have no long-term health and safety studies um, and efficacy studies in healthy people. So we need these long-term safety and efficacy studies. And then people are buying modafinil over the internet, which is a very unsafe way to get a drug. You don't know what it is. It could be contaminated with something else and some toxic agent because they're made in places, you know, in pe people's back shops in Mumbai or China. And then, of course, we might be forced into working longer because we can work longer. That's a concern. And coercion. Lots of students tell me that they don't want to take these drugs but they feel pressure put upon them to take the drugs because they know that other students are taking them. So I'll finish there, um, and uh, I hope they'll all join the Neuroethics Society. So thank you very much.
Okay, thank you, Barbara. Um, I'm now going to ask each panelist to ask one other panelist a very quick question. Oh. Just one, and just one very quick question, and then we'll open it up to questions from the floor. So, um, Paul, you've been listening the longest. Would you oh, okay. like to ask one other question? <laughs> one question to each? No, just one. Oh, one uh, question. Oh, I see. Oh, my God, that's a bit unfair, isn't it? That's, okay, I'll save the other question for later. We want to get the audience for later. Well, why don't, why, don't, why don't we get the audience in, and then we'll save them for later? I'll, I'll, I'll uh, Yeah, we, we can start. Yeah, we can start. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Okay, we'll start with the audience. Does anyone have a question in the audience? Of course they do. They haven't been taking enough <laughs> drugs. They've got to start thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Where can I get them? That's going to be the first. <laughs> Hi there. Um, uh, could you could you just make sure that you say your name, where you're from, and also keep your question short, please? Okay. Uh, my name's Richard. I'm a LSE alumnus from here in London. Um, Mr. Professor Dolan, you were talking a lot about changing the environment. And I'm sure we all can see the practical implications of turning off the telly or mobile phone when we're, we've got a task to do. But many, many people can't change their environment when you're talking about where they live, if they live in a, in a city area. So I just wanted to ask uh, about the role that meditation could play in improving um, the way we think and the way we look at the world because the majority of people can't change their immediate environment. Yeah, quick, okay, so quick, very, very quick answer. Of course, some people have more control over their space, literally, than other people do. Um, we probably have more control, all of us, than we think. People living in inner city areas can go outside for 10 minutes and get some fresh air. Um, you can nudge yourself to do that. Um, but I, don't, I want to set things up as I'm trying to be, I don't like being nice and considerate. This is not in my nature, but um, I feel like I'm about to be. Um, uh, of course, it's not either or. Um, you need the cognition and the you know, kind of system two processes um, to sit alongside system one. All I'm saying is, and it comes to the question that I would have asked, so what I'll ask it now, is actually why everything has to be hard work um, and effortful. If you can put in the effort to begin with to design your, your space, your physical space, your literal space, your mental space, put the effort in there to begin with, you can actually step back and not do any hard work afterwards and just let system one, your old reptilian brain, run rip without having, to, without having to think too hard about it at all. And I think all of us can do that, rich and poor, but of course some people have more opportunity to do it than others. Yeah, uh, there's a couple of things I want to say. That one, we'll come back to that one. So, the, 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 yes, I think one of the things that I'm generally concerned about um, with some of this agenda around sort of well-being, and in, on the one hand, people are you know increasingly coming up with things that people can do to help themselves, you know, mindfulness, meditation, whatever it might be, etc. But I do, I do think, you know, I think this echoes Paul's answer really, though, which is that you know it really mustn't be um, either or. Because I think there is this sort of danger that a heck of a lot of what we can do in changing the environment is good old-fashioned politics, you know? Um, A lot of the things around making people's lives better, you know, more better workplaces, etc., etc., are around, you know, legislation and politics and improving a lot of people. And my worry is that, you know, you've got people... I did read something the other day, I couldn't verify whether this was the case, but um, someone who claimed that as a job seeker, uh, they were sent off on a positive thinking course... 
because you know, the problem was they, they were being too negative rather than the fact that they were nearly 60 and there were no jobs in their neighbourhood. So I think that is a really serious issue. Now, the other point, which, which Paul just mentioned there, which I think is very interesting about why should things be effortful? I think there is a kind of a, a sense, an easy sense to have, and I think I sort of have this impulsive reaction <coughs> to kind of like, a, you know, the idea that people just pop a pill to do something which always used to be hard work. It's just not right, you know. You need to try hard on this. But I think we should challenge that, and it does very much um, depend. I think there's a lot of this stuff around gastric bands, for example. A lot of people think that gastric bands are terrible, and if people are really huge and fat, they should just eat less and walk more. You know, but gastric bands are actually used for people who really do, for various reasons, find it very, very, very difficult to lose weight. And actually, in those situations, I see no reason why you shouldn't do that. And in general, we don't disapprove. We think you're smart if you do the thing which makes it easier for yourself, and stupid if you make it more difficult for yourself. So if you're trying to lose weight, for example, we don't think the best thing to do is to shove your cupboard full of chocolates so that you can exercise your faculty of strength of will. You think, yeah, don't buy chocolates. Make it easier for yourself. But I think, I just, just that, I was thinking that there is something else which is slightly different. It's not about whether things are hard or difficult. It's whether or not the process is part of the, what is important. And if you think about you know, education and learning, then the point... I mean, again, I'm sounding very old-fashioned today, I think, but you know, I think most of us believe that education is a certain value for itself. It's not just about getting your degree at the end of it so you can wave it in front of an employer. And what's, one of the things that's potentially lost if you kind of like, you know, just sort of use these shortcuts, is the bad thing, isn't it, that it makes studying easier for people? It's the potentially, um, and something on the slide didn't mention it, it makes things all about the instrumentalisation and the whole thing about the ed- process of education being something which is enriching and enjoyable sort of goes by the window as we just sort of rush to get to the goal. So that's potential loss, I think. I'd just like to raise one point because um, I, I worked on the UK government foresight project of mental capital and well-being and they wanted to term that project mental capital and happiness Mm. and I did object to that and the reason I did is because happiness is something that we only experience every now and then Um, so for instance you know when you fall in love or when you um, have a baby born or when you get a paper in science and nature Um, (laughs) you know whereas well-being is something that we can all try to have a sense that things are generally good and we have this feeling of things. And I really don't like people being set up to think that everybody else is happy. Mm. All these people are happy and I'm not happy. I mean, it's, I think we should stop using the term as something that we can expect to be in that state for our lives. But, you know, I think we can expect a sense of well-being, but I don't think we can expect to always be happy. Well, as a happiness researcher, I, I feel compelled to respond to that. Um, the, uh, everything's in that definition. I mean, that's, you know, if you go back to Aristotle, he had a very wide-ranging definition of happiness. Um, it's all how we define it. And I said very clearly earlier that I think it's experiences of both pleasure and purpose as we go about our daily activities, the things that we do, the things we pay attention to in the experiences of our uh, lives. 
And it's also worth saying, I don't think there's anything trivial about fun either. This is something that um, two decades of Whitehall have taught me, um, that there is something in policymaking about the idea that just pleasure for pleasure's sake is something to be frowned upon, and Martha Nussbaum and others would say this too, <laughs> um, uh, that you know, somehow that, 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 that life is more, more and, and harder and tougher than that, and, and uh, it kind of trivialises hard work if you enjoy it. You know, it's kind of, um, I found that, that's really kind of masochistic to me, frankly. Mm. Um, I, think, I think pleasure is, a, is an important part of the human, con, human condition, and uh, we should celebrate it a bit more. So, so I, I think I'll say very quickly, you did, say, you, know yeah, you did say Aristotle had this very broad perception <laughs> yeah. of happiness. Yeah. I mean, as you will know, his term was eudaimonia, which yeah. when translated as happiness is arguably rather misleading, and it's yeah. better translated as something like well-being, actually. Yeah. Sorry, oh, so now good. We have, we have other questions. The gentleman in the front here and the lady in the back. Um, I'm Mark Morgan from Dublin. Um, I did social psychology here in the NSE. Um, <clears throat> I was going to ask you a question about the targets you picked in terms of critique of self-help. Because I think there are so many schools and so many approaches to improvements that it really depends on which one you pick. Mm. The one I was going to ask you to comment on is one that really would claim to have been the most successful in self-help, and that's Alcoholics Anonymous. I know that they do not have and they don't support any research or even allow research, but as far as we can gather, they have been incredibly successful and uh, working on self-help model. I'd just like your comment on that. Well, I can be quite brief because actually I was talking about either the self-help genre of book rather than sort of like, you know, self-help groups which have um, different things. I think Alcoholics Anonymous is an interesting example because there are um, potential things people do have issues with, um, but they do work for a lot of people, that's true. But actually, you know, one of the things about joining AA is that you are not, you are made aware from the beginning it's a long process, it's a difficult one, you need the support of other people. Anyone who's put out a book saying, you know, stop drinking in 12 easy steps, that's the kind of self-help I'm against, not that kind of like, you know, groups working together. Mutual support is something else, I agree, yeah. I'd just like to um, also bring out the point that my own feeling is that you can change your behavior. Um, We do it all the time as clinical psychologists. We help people change. But in the way with Alcoholics Anonymous, you need to want to change. You can't force somebody to change if they don't want to change, but you can help people change. And people do it all the time. That's what cognitive behavioral therapy is all about. Okay, um, uh, my name is Duan Kogji. I'm from the LSE. Uh, I have a quick question uh, for Paul. Uh, thanks for your presentations to all three. But my question is, so if, if what you're saying is that essentially we have control over changing our context, which in return makes us happier, does that not also change our self as well? So in other words, if I'm assessing my context mm. and responding, I am also changing my response and changing my identity and myself and, uh, I mean, however you define self. But is that not also happening? Um, that, that's an interesting question um, that I need to think further about answering, frankly. Um, I do think, just to kind of set this up as, a, as, as, as clearly silly but as extreme versions of the world is that there's no such thing as people only situations and so we would all behave and of course I'm setting out for the sake of argument we would all behave in precisely the same way if we're in the same situations 
Um, what we've typically done, though, is look at policy and as we're through the lens of people, as if there's some coherence of these system twos marching through life from birth to death. When actually, in contrast, and this is actually probably closer to the truth, actually, is that we're a series of system ones responding to situations in ways that pop up um, in those you know, kind of circumstances. And as you said yourself, in the you know, Cohen films, there's, it's, it's essentially people who are in environments that make them more likely to behave badly. I mean, all of us, would, all of us cheat, right? Everyone does. We all cheat. The, 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 you can give people moral reasoning and logic and reasons why they ought not to, but in the circumstances where there's opportunity to, all the data shows this, there's been tons of experiments across a whole range of different areas that show with opportunity people cheat. Now, what that suggests is, is that um, training yourself to be more virtuous is only going to be part of the answer. Not being in environments where you're going to cheat is the big solution. So... Um, that's that, 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 but, your, but your substantive question about do I change myself when I actively design environments suggests that you are thinking differently. So in that sense, you probably are becoming someone different, I suppose. I'd like to leap in a few things. I mean, surely, Paul, I mean, it's, it's, the only experiments show is that the, the probabilities of people behaving one or another are altered enormously by situational f- factors. But even in those kind of the, the famous experiments, you, there are always some people who, who don't and some people who do. Um, so there is an individual factor, isn't there? Not every MP no, cheats it on up, those No, no, I set, it up, I set right. it up as an extreme. Right. But if you've got a regression model and you're explaining the variance... <laughs> By situation and by person. Yes, situation. The heavy lifting is done by situation. Okay. And the tiny fraction of that variance is explained by person. Yet in our in our projections and imaginations of, of other people and and indeed of who we would be, because of course if we were MPs, we wouldn't cheat on our expenses, would we? Because we're much more virtuous on honest, decent people than they are. But we, what we don't do is we're not humble mm. about our likelihood of being like those people when we're in those situations. And rather than thinking about, about ourselves as different, we should look at ourselves as those people when they're in those you know, kind of circumstances because we're much more likely to be like them than we think we will be now. Yeah. Well, if I don't, I don't mind counting, because this is very interesting to me because I wrote a book called The Ego Trick about self and identity and I, I talked a lot about this situational thing and I think it's, it's easy to, to I think, misread that data. I think what that d- data rather shows is that as a matter of fact people are much, much more led by situation than anything else. But what that might show, if you were sort of trying to sort of like save your Aristotelian view of virtue and character, is what that might show is actually very few people have a kind of, have built a robust moral character. It doesn't mean it's impossible to do so. It doesn't mean you're doomed or stupid if you think that you can become more virtuous and resistant to temptation. It just shows that it's actually hard work. It doesn't come automatically. And assuming you're a good person doesn't mean you're not going to cheat when given the chance. If you've got, if you... What you would do is the cost-benefit um, analysis, right? I mean, that's you know, where, where's the biggest bang going to come from? Least effort. If it's changing my character and my soul and my identity and my ego, very, very costly, very, very effortful, probably won't work anyway, for little benefit. If it's much easier then to just not put myself in situations where I'm mm. going to behave in an immoral way, which is mm. not easy, but relatively easy, um, certainly you know, compared to changing the person that I am, then that's a cost-benefit. Well, um, and that's but, but these, these, these things aren't either-or. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but okay, so it's not either-or, but the brief point about the change yourself and, or the society... I think, okay, so short answer on that is that I think that, how do you understand the self? This is the real thing. And, of course, if you think of yourself as this kind of, like, 
pearl or essence, this thing which, which bounces around the world somehow separate from it but interacting with it, is a bit confusing. I think actually, you know, we, do, we should appreciate the fact that who we are, the, the boundaries between self and society are somewhat fluid. So of course you are changing yourself when, you're, when your environment is changing, your situation is, is changing, because in a sense you never were completely separate from it in the first place, you know. We have a question down here. My name's Katerina and I'm from the Courtauld and my question is to all three of you. Do you think some people are more kind of naturally wired for well-being or happiness and how would you be able to tell that if that's the truth or is um, these, this whole myth of personality types another sort of selling ploy? Um, definitely there are people with traits that uh, are different and certainly we know that uh, you know children when they're very small behave uh, differently as well so um, I think we all uh, are familiar with her friends or family members some of whom wake up every day almost in a very positive frame of mind and others who um, you know seem to be much more negative about life in general and things like that so I have no doubts that that, that is indeed the case. Um, again, you know, one can obviously work, work on that outlook, but there is natural differences. And we know that, you know, genes aren't everything by any means because there's, uh, environmental influences are very important. And um, they interact together, so, you know, in a very important way. But definitely there are, there are influences. There's a fascinating study by... Um, uh, I think it was Michelle in um, science where little kids were told, uh, you know, uh, don't eat the marshmallow until I come back. You can have it then. And, you know, some of them ate it right away and some of them waited till this person got back. And, and that he then followed this, them up much later. And the ones that, um, you know, were able to inhibit their responding had much better outcomes in life. So we know that some of this is, is there very early on. <laughs> no, I, yeah, no that's, that's absolutely true. The, 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 the issue for me, though, is what anyone can do about it, given their baseline. So here's a simple solution for you. <laughs> Try and keep things simple rather than complex. Spend, and it, it's going to sound glib, but actually, you know, common sense often is. Um, it, it, spend 15 minutes a day speaking with or to or in the presence of someone you enjoy being with, and, you're, and you will be made happier from doing so. Design an environment where that's more likely to happen. Whatever your baseline level of happiness, I can guarantee you without exception, whether you're a miserable person or a happy person in this room, you will be happier from doing that. Um, a very simple solution. Um, design it into your, into your situation. It might change the person that you are in the end. Um, very simple solution to, to make everybody whatever their baseline level of um, happiness is happening. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I think it seems to be undeniable that people have different baselines and dispositions. So, you know, the, the dice that some people roll a six, some people roll a one, whatever it might be, life isn't fair in that way. But I think that, you know, it's important not to be too um, fatalistic about it. And even some of the, I mean, the marshmallow one's very interesting. You'll know more about this than, than me. But I read something recently about it which suggested that although the general kind of uh, finding has been sort of replicated, so it's not that controversial. There is an added factor which might be slightly distorting and make it seem as though these people's destinies were a bit more fixed than they were. And this was that actually, if you take into account the, the background of the families where these kids came from, if you're in a chaotic background where things are unreliable, 
and you're asked to wait because you're going to be given another marshmallow at the end if you wait or eat it now. Actually, it's more rational for you to eat it now because you, you, you don't you haven't been you're not in a reliable background. Life is not when life is not reliable. You do take what you can straight away, and that's rational. So there is an element in which some people may be behaving very rationally in being in making this decision. And in terms of following up them up in later life, it wasn't because they already had the brains which meant they couldn't control themselves. It meant that actually, you know, they were from a background where their life chances were likely to be lower. So it doesn't completely debunk the whole experiment at all, but there is, there is that complicating factor, isn't there? About, yeah. yeah. We have a question here, this gentleman. Sorry, I've got two questions. Two very simple, one very simple one. Can you hear me? Oh, yes. 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 Second question. So I'm Steve North. <laughs> I'm from the Yorkshire Tales. Yes, we've even heard about the LSE up there. Um, one very simple question is, have any of you ever participated in any self-help programs or anything like that? And another question is, I may not have understood you correctly, but are you all saying that human beings are by nature situationists? Or are you saying the research is leading us to you to believe that? Or have I completely misunderstood what you're talking about? <laughs> no and yes. No, no, not, not yes, you misunderstood. Um, yes, the evidence is increasingly, is, 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 is increasingly showing that environmental, situational, contextual factors drive so much of what we do, largely in ways that we're unconscious of. And you place different people in situations, coming back to the marshmallow experiment, you know, Scarcity by um, Elder Sheffer and Sendham Murad and Nathan is a great book. You take people that are, you know, um, put them in time-poor environments, put them in income-poor um, environments, they behave in exactly the same way as poor people would act. They're impulsive and they take risks. That's, we, we put people in situations that are, that are largely the same and we act largely the same ways. Um, that's, what the, that's what the evidence is increasingly telling us. Leaving, leaving very little room, except insofar as we can design our situations differently, for the Mr. Spot bit of our brain to take charge. Um, Danny Kahneman on last night's Horizon programme said about, um, you know, it's, it, System 2, Mr Spock, thinks it's the star of the show, but it's actually just a very small, you know, supporting cast member. Uh, System 1 is the main event. I, I feel quite differently from that. I mean, I think... Um, it's been shown lots of times, I mean, survivors from Holocaust and other things, that you have a lot of control within your own mind. And uh, certainly as a clinical psychologist, I, I, I believe that. And uh, certainly I, I try to, uh, I frequently see that I'm doing things that I don't think, are, you know, are good for me in, in terms of well-being or, you know, getting frustrated about things that maybe I can't change. And I frequently try to work on those issues, too. In the same way I would work with, um, you know, a, a, a patient or a, a, somebody who came in to see me about uh, help. So I, I feel quite differently about it. I mean, I can understand that situations are very strong, but I still think we have a lot of opportunities to... Um, you know, change the way we think about things and to alter ourselves as people if we want to improve. I mean, I feel like I'm obliged to split the difference now, can we, third? But, no. but uh, look, I think that it's certainly true that situation plays a huge role, a much larger role than we think. Uh, a lot of the things for decisions are based on the unconscious, etc., etc. 
Does that mean, though, that the whole idea of character is just a, a great myth? I don't think it shows that either, because as Barbara's kind of suggested, the fact of the matter is that you put people in what are identical situations and they do behave differently. Sometimes that's just because they have different dispositions, they just have different personalities. Sometimes it's because they've learnt something in their lives which has equipped them to deal with that situation a bit differently. So, you know, recovering alcoholics might be a very good example. It may be just their circumstances and their characters and opportunities led them to go down the path they went, but they have been able, some are able, and a lot are able, to learn strategies which enable them to behave differently. So I think the sort of short answer echoes what I said earlier, really, is it's not that character is a myth, it doesn't exist. It's just that in order to sort of like build the, the kind of character which can influence, it can make you more in control, as it were, of, of your actions and make you less dependent purely on what's going on around you is, is, is a pr- serious project which involves hard work. And, it is, and it, you know, certainly no one is going to, to get this. The idea that anyone is perfectly in control of their own actions and completely immune from all these things is obviously a complete myth. But you, you, we, can, we can be better or worse on this continuum. How, what percentage we can control... I'm agnostic. I'd just like to just add one thing to that. Um, my book, Bad Moves, actually talks about um, the fact that we use our frontal cortex, the front part of our brain, to exert top-down control over the emotional brain, which is the so, sort of more basic um, aspect of our, our, our brain. So um, I think that we're, we're quite capable of being able to inhibit our responses and change the way we are, um, even when we're, we might have very strong motivational processes that are driving us towards a certain uh, goal, we can still um, control ourselves if two, we wish two, to. Two quick speculations. One, one quick observation is relative cost-effectiveness again. Every, everything, everything comes back to what effort is required for what outcome. It's, it's just simpler to change your situations than it is to change the person you are, even if you can change the person you are. Second is a speculation. I bet if we were having this conversation 100 years ago, we would be talking much more about free will, autonomy, control. If we're having this conversation in 100 years' time, that wriggle room is going to be much, much smaller than it is now. In fact, that's not a speculation. That's a statement of fact. Hello. Uh, In this situation, I I feel compelled to say that my name's Tane Dunlop and I'm from New Zealand. Uh, Everybody else. You couldn't help yourself. Um, I think my question's primarily for uh, Professor Sahakian. With the cognitive drugs like modafinil, um, is there an expectation amongst researchers that if they improve the performance mentally and the mood, etc., of people who are healthy, I do not suffer from ADHD, or, yeah, then should there also be some massive downside to them we haven't found yet? Because otherwise the human brain over the last 6,000 or perhaps million uh, years have already evolved to be in the states that a human brain is when you give it modafinil or the other um, drugs. So so we don't really know the long-term safety and efficacy in healthy people because nobody's done those studies because basically drugs are regulated for diseases or disorders so that um, 
you know, we haven't studied that, and it really needs to be done, and I've been pushing the government to do it so that people who want to use these drugs could have the opportunity to in a safe way rather than buying it over the Internet, which I'm very concerned about. But um, I think we often think of ourselves as, um, you know, functioning at our optimal level. But, I mean, how many people here really got a good night's sleep or uh, don't have any stress upon them at the moment or anything like that? So the point is that as a healthy person, you can still be below your optimal level of functioning for yourself. And also, those of us who are over 20, our brains are not functioning as well as they used to when we were in our 20s. So if we were to take these drugs as older people, would we just be restoring ourselves back to where we were when we were 20, or would we be enhancing ourselves because we'd be better than our peers? Um, It's a very interesting issue, and I think globally it's becoming more and more an issue because I'm sure this is going to go on more worldwide, and it's certainly on the increase, this use of these drugs. And we know that, you know, um, higher cognition within a country can lead to higher GDP, and that um, cognitive function is is linked closely to well-being as well. So it's, it's very interesting. As a society, we really have to start to think about, you know, what do we think about these drugs? Do we want people to use them or do we want them to be you know, using education and other means like this to boost their cognition? Are there particular people we want to use these drugs, like people working at night? Um, there was accidents with the buses not too long ago where they were driving children back to the UK and they, and they were killed because the bus driver fell asleep. So, you know, there, there might be, I think there's an important discussion to be had here. May I ask a question on the back of that, as Chair's prerogative? So we've been talking about um, cognitive-enhancing drugs, changing environments, building moral character. And as Barbara was just saying, the government is very interested in all of these strategies, um, improving national prosperity, safety margins, um, but also actually uh, Cameron's government has been very interested in building character in children through education. So I suppose my question is, how much say should the individual have in any of this? Or should these environments just start changing, um, in a sense, from the top down? Who gets to decide these sorts of changes? Well, I mean, it is very difficult. I I find the whole government well-being um, agenda very, very hard. Because on the one hand, of course... You've got to approve of government taking seriously more than just increased GDP when assessing the sort of like the, the the flourishing of the nation. So that's kind of got to be a good thing. But there's a but coming, obviously. Um, how do they how do they do that? Well, first of all, by by measuring well-being. And I'm very, very suspicious of the measurements of well-being. It's a very crude metric. Um, and, you know, and it's obviously one where you know, most people answer about 7.8 or something. You know, I mean, like, there is a kind of a huge sort of like benchmarking effect whereby people go for what they think is typical and so forth. So the, the measure, even the measurement of it is, is, is deeply problematic. I wish they'd just do away with that and just say, we want these certain things because they're good for society and let's try and increase them rather than try and sort of prove some dubious methodology. Um, the other thing about character in school, I mean, it can sound very kind of Orwellian to think that you know, the government wants to instill certain character traits in, in children, but on the other hand, um, 
Of course we want schools to do a certain amount of that, don't we? I mean, we don't want schools to kind of like, um, you know, say to the kid who goes, you know, well, I, I believe in the assertion of individual will over the rights of others and I'm just going to like bash anyone I can because the strongest person should win. You, you'd rather hope the teachers would not let that happen, you know. Um, so we do actually want uh, schools to, in some sense, teach th- certain things around good character, that hard work, hard work should be rewarded, cheating should not be, and so forth. So it is, it is I would say, you know, one of the, it's, it's a delicate balance, which sounds like I'm, I'm failing to give an answer. I am, in a way. I'm just saying you, you, have, to, you have to kind of... Um, I, th- I think one should always be suspicious and careful about extending the government's role in these things, but at the same time not simply assuming that those things it's been doing all along are OK and anything new it suggests is bound to be sinister and Orwellian. Ah, oh, bless. Been around <laughs> philosophers too long. Um, policymakers need to value intangible benefits of public policy interventions, because if you don't, they either don't get valued, or we have a discussion about how we think they should be valued. You have to measure stuff. If you're going to use scarce public monies wisely, you need to measure the benefits of the use of that money. Frankly, that's what you have to do. And um, I can think of no better way of finding out how someone feels, which I think ultimately is what policy should be based upon. We should be helping people to feel better for longer. However that's measured, very, we, can, we can call it well-being if you want, but broadly, pleasure and purpose in people's lives. Um, and I can think of no better way than to do that and to ask them. If I kicked you in the shins now, the best way to find out how much that hurt would be to ask you how much pain you're in. Now, I could judge that. I could make some external judgment about how much pain you're in. I could allocate public monies on, the, on some basis of my judgment. But actually, you know what? We give pain medication on the basis of how much pain people report being in. I can't think of a better way to do that. The measurements are crude. The measurements are not perfect. But the measurements are better than not measuring at all. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. <laughs> Barbara, give her opinion before we go back to you. Well, I think... Um you know, there are many issues that we discussed here that are very important, and I think it does require a dialogue between the government and between people and society about how they feel about different things. And there are certain things that I think uh, are very obvious that we would all agree on. So, you know, there's now um, laws where you can't be smoking in uh, public places, and our hospitals banned it from the whole site. So things like that, I think... Um, you know, uh, I think most people, except for the smokers, of course, would would say was a good thing. But even even many of the smokers would say, with hindsight, that maybe it's a good idea that they're not smoking in a closed environment where other people have to inhale the smoke. So I think it, it, these are very difficult decisions about you know a government telling you or, or legislating that something is good for you and people deciding that it really is good for you requires a lot of education, which sometimes the government doesn't do very well to explain some of the policies, but I think it requires an interaction between society and the government. Smokers are made happier when smoking taxes go up. <laughs> but, I mean, but, so, going back to Paul's... Paul, Paul, <laughs> fact. Going back to what Paul said, I mean, I... I 
I hope you're not suggesting that, you know, it's better to have a bad measure than no measure at all, because that, that sounded a bit like what you might be suggesting. I mean, you, you do need measurements. I agree with that. But you, could only, you should only measure things that can be properly measured. Now, you can measure lots of things which are connected to well-being, which are nice and objective. So you can measure things around, like, you know, um, health outcomes, for example, and education access and things like this. You can, so you can, you can do that. But when you ask the question to somebody on a scale of 1 to 10, how do you rate your sort of you know, your happiness or you know in the last week have you felt anxious these are the kind of questions they ask the idea that by taking all those figures adding them together and comparing them year on year you're going to get a meaningful sense of whether or not we're happy or not I think no, it's just really very very strange so I mean I think surely you say yeah measuring the things that are really um, useful is, is almost certainly not going to include those very general questions about I mean, you should say, of course, I wrote the four questions that the ONS are using to measure national well-being. So I'm not sure you knew that. But um, so, so um, oh, in that case, I would have. Yeah. Well, no, of course, that's you know, um, there is an issue of using. It depends how those data are used. I mean, there is an issue of making those um, temporal comparisons. So, of course, year on year, those happiness ratings don't change very much. The averages don't don't change very much. But to use them in a cross section to allocate scarce public money at any one moment in time, they vary enormously. If you, if you lose your job, mm. you report being significantly less happy on every single measure that we can measure happiness on. When you get a job again, you're still less happy than you were pre-losing your job. Unemployment is not just bad when you're out of work. It stays scarring when you get a job again. And we think that's because it has an insecurity-generating effect. If you base policy only on unemployment statistics, say, objective numbers, although even there they're a little dodgy because that... You know, objectivity thing almost goes out the window because you're asking people to, to measure things to say whether they've got a job or not. Um, but even if you based it on those policies, then you would be saying unemployment is only scarring, only scarring when people are out of work. Mm. When they're back in work again, they're exactly where they were before. Uh, but they're just not. They are less happy. Mm. And that seems to be significant. We would, we would care about unemployment much more than just the unemployment numbers because of unemployment's effects on how people feel, not just because they lose their job. Oh, yeah, but this is good, because what you're saying there is you've got good research, which involves a subject... I've got good research, yeah, you, You've got good research <laughs> based on subjective well-being reports, which show a very marked difference, as right. you said. Nancy. Right. Great. So you use that to drive policy around, you know, keeping people out of unemployment, etc., etc. Having done that finding, that's what you do next. You don't really get much value from then sort of like repeating these general questions over the population as a whole year on year and doing those annual comparisons, do you? That what your what your well, data things is, change. People are going to stop getting depressed. No, by, no. People, the, the, the relative again, it's relative priorities, isn't it? The relative mm. impact of different mm. life circumstances and events will change over time. <clears throat> the impact of marital breakdown two decades ago will be different mm. than it is now. Yeah. So we can, relative to other things, we can ask the audience: raise your hand if you have a sense of well-being. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> and, and how many of you would say Raise that? Raise your hand if you feel, feel less, less happy now than you did when you come in. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I'm interested in how many of you would say that you're happy. So it is. It is yeah, we should have done that at the fewer, beginning and the end. Somewhat fewer of you. <laughs> okay, we have, we have only a few more minutes left. I don't know if anyone has a last burning question. Yes, gentlemen up there. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you. My name's Melvin Jones. I'm from Birkbeck. And uh, I've got a question about a fictional character, and I wonder what advice you would give him. The, the fictional character is Jude the Obscure, Thomas Hardy. And uh, he was, uh, as far as I can work out, a complete failure. He failed in his academic uh, ambitions. He failed in his spiritual ambitions. He failed in his uh, love and marital ambitions. And his uh, son killed his other children. Um, he had a pretty miserable life, but he had a lot of um, drive in him, which I think was centred on self-help. Uh, I just wonder where you think he went wrong and how could, <laughs> and how he could improve his uh, life if he were to live it again. His mistake was to be born in a Thomas Hardy novel. <laughs> That's my answer. Because <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. That's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> but, slightly, slightly more seriously, I, I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's all bleak and all that kind of stuff. But those kind of stories, I think, at least free up the option that when you, when you judge at the end of life, was that a good life? Um, it's not always obvious when those simple facts about the things we associate with success and happiness, are they? Wittgenstein very famously said on his deathbed, apparently, tell them I've had a wonderful life or something. But, you know, and his biographer, Ray Monk, points out he didn't say he'd had a happy life. And it sounds like he didn't really. He was quite a tormented person. But at the end of his life, he could say he'd had quite a wonderful one, despite the suffering. So, um, yeah. Okay, well... I know of no one who actively seeks out misery. No. Um, knowing for sure that an action, for sure that an action would make them feel less happy. It would make them feel less pleasure or purpose in the experiences. Lots of what we do can be explained by purpose, mm. but experience is a purpose in the moment that we're um, in that action. But no, it's masochistic to seek out things, to seek out pain. Of course. And it's sadistic to do that on the part of public policymakers. Can I say something on that? Because I think Sorry, Rosal wears off the wall consulting. Um, I do quite a lot of behavioural work. Um, it's very, very hard for somebody to unlearn that behaviour. And if you look at the sort of impact of group therapy, those people can help that person to stop themselves getting into a situation where that's more likely to happen. But it's it is a very, very hard pattern to change. So, yeah. so there are some people that, without help, will continue to put themselves in a the situation where they are repeating abusive patterns. And that's why those interventions matter so much. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Yeah, no, but no, they, that's why they matter so much. That's that's why they matter so much. They matter so much more than other interventions where we think we have an objective definition of impact. It's because it shows up ultimately in people feeling worse from those experiences. That's ultimately what that's ultimately what matters. You want to lose weight, you might want to lose weight, you might not. Ultimately, people want to lose weight. Why? Because, 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 because. In the end, in the end, ultimately to feel better. And once you say that, there's no further recourse. There's no reason to inquire further into why someone wants to feel better. Well, <laughs> I, I don't want to leave it at that. Um, I, I think what we can agree on is that uh, the discussion today has, has moved around terms that we still need to think about, terms like happiness, well-being, pleasure, purpose, um, and that certainly the discussion is probably more open than, than closed at this stage, um, but that there may be some uh, government intervention coming down the line uh, 
in the near future in, in some way, shape, or form. So I'd like to, to thank our speakers uh, today very much and thank you for, for coming along to this. And um, I believe that Barbara will be... Uh, there, there are copies of Barbara's book and Julian's book out um, in the foyer, and you're welcome to, to come and, and buy some copies and have a chat with, with these panellists. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.